Well, hey, everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Honored to have you along for the ride. And I got to do this. You knew it was coming. Very special welcome to the Michigan football fans. Where are you at? Dude, that was an unexpectedly wonderful beatdown, was it not? I mean, it was glorious. And I, you know, I'm a father of four and not one to miss an opportunity to train my children. I decided to make them a slide this morning to communicate a profound truth through mathematics. So check this out. <laughs> yeah, that is some good stuff right there. Anyway, today we're launching a brand new series uh, called Seasons that's going to take us right up through Christmas Eve. And to be honest, I can't wait to share this content with you. I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say that after the series, you'll never see the holiday season or really Jesus in quite the same way again. And, and seriously, I, I cannot wait to share this content with you. Um, and so what I want to do over the next few weeks is to explore the six annual feasts that God gave to ancient Israel in order to help them remember the times that he had met with them in very special ways. And these feasts are described in detail in the third book of the Old Testament, a document called Leviticus uh, that you already know all about if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year. Are you with me on this? Like you're cruising through Genesis and Exodus and you get to Leviticus and you're like, you know, maybe I'm going to read Harry Potter again or whatever, right? Because it's not an easy read. But um, anyway, and actually, we're not, we don't do much with Leviticus, but that's where you find in Leviticus 23. But here are the feasts described in Leviticus. They go like this. Passover, first fruits, Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah, which sounds like something you need a cream for if you visit your dermatologist. I know that, but we'll get there. Yom Kippur and Tabernacles. And uh, now you may be wondering, and this is fair, what is it exactly that makes these feasts so fascinating? I mean, most of us aren't Jewish, right? And, and that is a great question, but it's a great question that also happens to have a great answer. And that answer goes like this. Name, the word in Hebrew that's translated feasts is the word mikra. And mikra can also be translated rehearsals. In other words, ancient Israel's holiday season was marked by celebrations designed not only to remind God's people of what he had done for them in the past, but also to point them forward to something that he would one day do, as it turns out, not just for them, but for the whole world. And in fact, that reality is affirmed in a letter written by an early pastor named Paul. He wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. And in a letter to non-Jewish Christians living in Greece who were facing tension for not choosing to celebrate the Jewish feasts by the Jewish Christians. So the Jewish Christians were sort of upset at the non-Jewish Christians. Here's what Paul writes to them. He says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And then check this out. They, these are a shadow of the things that were past tense to come. The reality, however, is present tense found in Christ. In other words, Paul's writing here that Jesus fulfilled the feasts of ancient Israel. And moreover, in, as amazing as it may sound, the feasts of ancient Israel actually predicted aspects of Jesus' life and identity and mission hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. 
In fact, and as we'll see this in the coming weeks, five of the six feasts described in Leviticus have already been fulfilled by Jesus and the authors of the New Testament record that the remaining feast will also be fulfilled by Jesus one day in the future. How's that for a teaser, right? So don't miss the series. It's going to be great. Anyway, with the rest of our time together today, I want to show you how Jesus fulfilled a Jewish feast called Passover. And each year, Passover sort of unofficially announces the arrival of spring in Israel. And in ancient times, it was an occasion when literally tens of thousands of Jewish people from all over the ancient world would travel to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the feast by sacrificing a lamb on the altar in the temple. And I brought from the internet an artist rendering of what the temple complex would have looked like in the first century. It was absolutely massive. It spanned over 36 acres. Now, the aforementioned sacrificial lambs served as a reminder of the night when God had rescued the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt some 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. And that story is recorded for us in a document called Exodus in the Old Testament of the Bible. And the author of Exodus describes in vivid detail the preparations that God invited the people to make in advance of the night he would rescue them. He tells us that God gave a man named Moses, who had recently been recruited as Israel's leader, some specific instructions to pass on. So here's what God told Moses to tell the people. Speak to the whole community of Israel. He says, tell them that on the 10th day of this month, each man must get a lamb from his flock. He goes on, the animals you should choose must be males that are a year old, and they may not have any flaws. And I've used this joke before, but it is a good pastor joke, and there aren't a lot of good pastor jokes, so I'm going to drop it on you right here, okay? What this means practically is that your three-legged lamb, Lucky, does not qualify. <laughs> okay, it wasn't even a great pastor. I'm going to move on. Okay. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. He says, then the whole community of Israel must kill them when the sun goes down. And then it gets weird. Take some of the blood... Put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where you eat the lambs. And so that would have looked something like this. I found it on the internet. And now you should know that not only do God's instructions seem a bit odd to us thousands of years after they were given, but they would undoubtedly have sounded odd to the first people to receive them. It was sort of an unprecedented thing to ask a people to do. And so, of course, scholars have long wondered, like, what's the deal with the blood on the doorframe? But, but here seems to be the consensus. God was essentially asking the children of Israel to demonstrate in like a tangible, visible, observable way that they were willing to trust him to rescue them. So in a sense, he says, if you want to be a part of the new thing that I'm about to do, signal your willingness to the world by putting the blood of a lamb on the frame of your door. And then God goes on. He says, the blood on your houses will be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover from. He says, no deadly plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then this, always remember this day. Like for all time to come, you and your children after you must celebrate this day as a feast in honor of the Lord. And here's what's funny. If you go and read the rest of the Old Testament carefully, you'll notice that over and over and over again, God tells the people to remember this moment in their history. 
The authors of the Old Testament encouraged the children of Israel to remember the night their ancestors put the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses. To remember that God delivered them from slavery that night. And I think most importantly of all to remember, and this is huge, that God can be trusted to do what he says he will do. Now, now obviously, the memory of this night was like incredibly significant to the people of ancient Israel. I mean, it was the night when God rescued them from an impossible situation and gave them identity and purpose in the world as his people. It was the night when literally everything had changed for them. But as I've also noted already, like the Feast of Passover was also a sort of rehearsal for something that God would do one day, not just for them, but for the entire world. It was like a, Paul called it a shadow of something that would one day be fulfilled. And and so in order to show you what I mean when I say that Jesus fulfilled Passover, we need to fast forward 1,500 years or so from the time of the first Exodus to the time of Jesus. And by that point in Israel's history, a sophisticated tradition had sort of grown up around Passover. Uh, The feast, which was a seven-day feast, was launched with a special ceremonial meal called the Seder. Now, Seder is a Hebrew word that roughly translates order or arrangement. And that's a good definition because the Passover Seder was a highly ordered experience rich with imagery. The idea was that the parents could teach the children the story of the Exodus through sharing a special meal together. And so as an observant Jew, Jesus would have known Passover well. Like he would have celebrated it every year he was alive with his family and with his friends and with his community. But see, here's the thing. Jesus would also have known that Passover would provide a powerful framework that he would leverage during his last night on earth because you see he too planned to invite his followers to trust him and he too wanted them to remember a very different sort of exodus that he was about to bring about and and so on the final evening of his life which also happened to be the first night of the Jewish feast of Passover Jesus sat with his disciples for a seder meal a meal that he knew would be the last supper that he would share with them before surrendering his life on the cross. It was a celebration that was going to remind them of their past and, he knew, point them to their future. And so here's how it went down. Like every year before them, the night of the Last Supper, uh, they enjoyed a Passover Seder that was built around the four promises that God had made the children of Israel before rescuing them from Egypt. And they're recorded for us again in the book of Exodus. The four promises were these. God said to the people, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. He says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So four promises, they're highlighted in yellow. The first promise in this passage is the promise of freedom. God essentially says to the people, I will bring you out from under the oppression of slavery. You will be free. Second promise is the promise of deliverance. God tells the people, I will give you a new identity. I'll deliver you from slavery and you will be my people. And the third promise is, is redemption. God basically says, I will pay whatever cost it takes to set you free 
from your bondage. And finally, the fourth promise is the promise of protection. God says, I will watch over you and I will take care of you. And as you see in some other texts, sort of like in the ancient times, the husband would take care of their wife. God says, I'll be like a husband to you. Now, during the Passover Seder, each of these four promises is remembered by the sharing of a common cup of wine, like one cup is passed around the table four times. And obviously, this did not work well during the pandemic. I had some Jewish friends ask them about it. They're like, yeah, we didn't do that part. But anyway, um, the cups representing the first two promises, freedom and deliverance, are always shared before the meal began as a way to sort of inaugurate the celebration. And according to the accounts of Jesus' life, everything was proceeding according to that tradition on the night of the Last Supper until the moment that Jesus broke unexpectedly and dramatically from the script. So an early Jesus follower named Luke tells us what happened that night. He writes, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and then gave it to them, the disciples, saying, this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. And now we've read this passage. If you've been in church at all, if you grew up in church, every time you celebrate communion or the Eucharist, you read this passage. I mean, this is a central part of Christian tradition. And consequently, we're so familiar with it, we miss the drama of this moment, how they would have experienced it. Because Jesus in this essentially conscripts a significant element of the Passover Seder, like bread made without yeast that recalled the suddenness of Israel's departure from slavery in Egypt. And he says to the disciples, well, that it's his body, his sacrifice, his offering. And I mean, they would have been stunned. They would have been shocked. They probably would have been offended. I mean, as I mentioned, like the Passover was the defining moment in ancient Israel's history as a nation. And in this moment, Jesus not only inserts himself into that tradition, he essentially redefines it for his followers. It's almost like he says to them, hey, I know that for hundreds of years, Passover Seder, right, has recalled the exodus from Egypt. But hey, I got an idea. Moving forward from here on out, I want you, when you have the meal, I want you to remember me. So when you eat Passover bread, I want you to remember me. And I'm telling you, if anyone other than Jesus had said this to these guys, they would have stood up and walked out of the room. But see, it was Jesus who had said it. And Jesus had also done some pretty incredible things. He'd healed blind people and deaf people. And he had even raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And so the disciples weren't sure what to do with what he was saying, but they stayed seated and they wondered what he possibly could have meant. Well, as the meal progresses, they share, um, they share grilled lamb. That's kind of the main course. Um, and after the lamb, tradition dictated that the cup representing the third promise would have been passed. That's the promise of redemption, where God tells the people, I'll pay whatever it takes to set you free from your bondage. And Luke describes that moment for us in his account of Jesus' life as well. And here's, here's what he tells us. He says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I'm telling you, when Jesus said these words, his disciples would have been beyond confused. They would have thought, first, well, what do you mean new covenant? Ancient Israel is already in a covenant with God. It happened at Mount Sinai, like 45 days after we were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And moreover, Jesus says this new covenant is going to be ratified by his blood being poured out. But as he's standing there having a meal with them, he isn't bleeding. So what in the world was Jesus 
talking about. And I just imagine like Peter and James and John, some of these disciples that grew up in sort of the Bible Belt of the first century, those villages along the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, they knew the text like the back of their hands. And as they sat there and thought, new covenant, new covenant, where have we heard about the new covenant? And they would have, it would have dawned on them. They, they had heard about the new covenant and it was described by an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. But say he had lived like 600 years before the time of Jesus. And during a time of rebellion by ancient Israel, rebellion against God, Jeremiah had passed along a message from God to the people. And here's what God had told his people 600 years before the time of Jesus. He says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. He says, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. He's almost like the covenant out of Egypt was unique because it was an if-then covenant. God said to the people, if you follow all the rules, then I will bless you. But if you don't follow the rules, then I won't bless you. It was a conditional covenant. So the news here is that one day in the future, God's going to cut a covenant with Israel, a new covenant, because the first one didn't work. And then he says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time. And this is amazing. Watch this. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Notice this isn't requiring anything of people. This is all God moving towards his people. And then most significantly of all, he says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 600 years before the time of Jesus, God predicts a new covenant, and it is a new covenant, not founded on obedience or predicated on obedience, but predicated on his amazing grace. You know, obviously, uh, the prophecy by Jeremiah was a little bit cryptic. And it left the people of Israel with more questions than answers. But, but see, somehow from the perspective of the disciples, Jesus was informing them that his blood was about to be leveraged to bring about the long-promised new covenant. And, and I just imagine the disciples just standing there and just sitting there in just stunned silence, trying to absorb Jesus' words and, and waiting for the fourth cup to be passed, right? That's the cup that recalled God's promise to protect the people and it always came at the conclusion of the Passover Seder. But see, during the Last Supper, Jesus didn't pass the fourth cup. Instead, he somewhat mysteriously looked at his disciples and said, Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And the disciples would have thought, wait a minute. You can't be serious. What do you mean you were not drinking from the cup of protection? We need, Jesus, we need God's protection more now than ever. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but like the Jewish religious leaders, especially the ones that run the temple, they kind of hate you. And they kind of want to kill you. Because remember that thing we did uh, earlier where we went into the temple and we flipped over the money changer tables and drove everyone buying and selling stuff out of the temple courts? Yeah, they're not real hot on you right now. We need God's protection. And yeah, the Romans, the Roman Empire, the military superpower in control of Israel in those days, yeah, they think you're about to launch a revolution. And all they care about is unity under Caesar, and so everybody wants to stop you. We desperately need God's protection right now. But Jesus stood up that night and left the Seder meal without drinking to God's protection. After singing a traditional song, 
he led his disciples out of the old city of Jerusalem because as it turns out, for Jesus, this Passover had only just begun. There would have been a full moon that night. Passover always begins under a full moon. And Jesus and his disciples would have crossed the Kidron Valley, which is the valley that runs along the eastern edge of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's a valley through which, according to a Jewish uh, historian named Josephus, in the year 4 of the Common Era, 4 AD, the blood of as many as 250,000 lambs flowed like a river during Passover. And so Jesus and his disciples, I like to imagine them sort of stepping over this stream of blood that flowed from the temple and then beginning to walk up the Mount of Olives before reaching the Garden of Gethsemane. And upon arrival, Jesus left his disciples and he went off by himself to pray. And it's an interesting prayer. And again, it's easy to jump over it if you're familiar with it. But I just want to notice something that Jesus prays that night in the garden. And Luke tells us, uh, Jesus prayed this, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And as far as we know, there's not a literal cup anywhere in the garden that night. So like, what was the cup that Jesus was talking about here? And I mentioned that during the Passover, there were always four cups that represented God's four promises to Israel. But it isn't quite true because somewhere between the end of the Old Testament and the beginnings of the New Testament, there's 400 years there, uh, there was actually a fifth cup that sort of sat on the peripheral of the Passover Seder, kind of became loosely connected with it. And, and this, is, this cup is mentioned by the same Old Testament prophet who wrote about the New Covenant, which is pretty stunning if you think about it. But here's, so here's what Jeremiah wrote, again, 600 years before the time of Jesus about this cup. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And so, so this fifth cup, it, it, it sort of represents God's wrath towards the sins of the world, all of the things that are not the way he intended them to be. And see, Jeremiah's prophecy makes it incredibly clear. God's holiness demands that someone pay for all the sins. Symbolically speaking, someone or a whole bunch of someones have to drink from the cup of judgment. And not surprisingly, uh, the rabbis in between the Old and New Centuries, or Old and New Testaments, had gotten together and debated whether or not this cup should be included in the Passover Seder. I mean, it is in the Bible. It's a promise. God promised that one day he would judge the sins of the world, and he had already judged the sins of Egypt. So they wondered, like, should it be a part of the annual Passover meal? And as often happens with a bunch of religious leaders, when you get us together, they decided that they couldn't decide. And so the fifth cup sort of sat on the peripheral of most celebrations. It's also called Elijah's cup. But see, I think Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane that night thinking about that cup. And I think as he wrestled in his spirit that night, and he recognized that the weight of the world's sins were about to fall on his shoulders, he realized that, that he was going to have to drink it. He was going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And that's why he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But then he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. I understand there's a bigger plan and I submit to your plan. But in his humanity, everything in Jesus was screaming, 
let me out. Let there be another way. But then less than 24 hours later, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And while hanging on that cross, he did what God had sent him to do. He drank the cup of wrath. Like every single drop. But, but there's more too because as Jesus passed from this life as he dismissed his spirit, he cried out three of the most beautiful words that have ever been uttered on the face of planet earth. He said, it is finished. In other words, I've absorbed the wrath of God. I've paid the price. My blood has ratified a new covenant between people and God and now the cup of God's fury is empty. And I'm telling you, as unbelievable as that sounds, what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Jesus took on himself. Like he paid the price for us to be released from our bondage and slavery to sin and the eternal consequences of sin. And since that moment when he said, it is finished, there has been a new exodus and practically speaking, what that means for you and me is that there's nothing we need to do and there's nothing we can do in order to pay for our sins because Jesus paid it all. He is the final Passover lamb. And just like the children of Israel trusted God to put the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their homes in order to signal to him that they desired to be a part of the new thing he was doing, we are invited 2,000 years later to trust God and symbolically speaking, put the blood of God's lamb on the door frame of our hearts to signal our desire to be a part of the new thing that God has done because Jesus really was who his cousin John the Baptist proclaimed him to be right before baptizing him in the Jordan River. Remember what he said? John looked out and saw Jesus coming and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in fact, and, um, and I have just a, a few things that I cut from my notes, but I just have to share them because they're so cool. And if I got home and I didn't, I'd hate myself. So here we go. Uh, so cool. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was born in the town of David, and Bethlehem was a shepherd's town because David was a shepherd. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem in the same town where lambs were born who were to be sacrificed at Passover in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was born in the same caves where newborn lambs were wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in, anyone want to guess? <laughs> Mangers. And then you fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, and when he enters the city of Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday, he entered on the same day that the Passover lambs selected for sacrifice in the temple entered the city, and he entered through the same gate where the Passover lambs entered, a gate not so creatively called the sheep gate. All that to say, through his death on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the Jewish feast of Passover and revealed the reality, the incredible reality that Passover had been pointing to him all along. Isn't that incredible? When I was meeting with the team this week and we were talking about how to kind of land the service today, we decided we wanted to give you a little space um, and listen to a song together. 
Um, and for some of us, it is just a chance to allow gratitude to well up inside of us for what God through Jesus has done for us. It's also possible, as I was, as I was praying this through, I'm like, it's possible that there's a few people here that have never understood this before. And like, you're going, wow, this is good news. And you're right, we call it the gospel. It's good news. This is incredible. This is the best news in the history of history. And the good news is that God has done everything necessary for you to be at peace with him other than to force you to accept the sacrifice of Jesus. He loves you enough to let you say no. But if you've never said yes, there has never been a better time than right now. And so we want to give you a chance just to open your hands and open your hearts and either just thank God for what he's done or maybe for you, just ask that the blood of Jesus cover your sins. Like he died for the sins of the world, that's clear, but you want his sacrifice to cover your sins. And there's no magical prayer. There's nothing specific you have to say. It's just literally say to God, I want to be a part of the new thing that you're doing. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins. So I want to give you a moment just to reflect again, to be thankful, maybe to say a prayer. Um, the song is called Rescue. And it, it's, it's an amazing song. It's written from the perspective of God. And it just demonstrates how much he loves us, all of us that he will do whatever it takes to rescue us and to allow us to become the people that we were created to be. So let's listen to this song together and then I'll come out and I'll close our time in prayer. You are not There's never been a moment you were forgotten, you are not hopeless. Though you have been broken, your innocence stolen. I hear you whisper underneath your breath. I hear your SOS, your SOS.
just a moment, I'll, I'll close this in prayer, but uh, I just want to honor the moment. And for some of you, um, if you just prayed for the first time and you want to talk to someone, we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left. Uh, just answer any questions you have, or maybe you came into this space and you're just struggling in life and you just want someone, someone to remind you that you're loved. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. And so uh, just right after the service, we'll meet you over there. But for the rest of us, if you could just stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, overwhelmed, overwhelmed once again by the gospel of grace that you came for us and you rescued us from an impossible situation because you love us. Not because we are good, but because you are good. We will forever, we will forever thank you for moving in our direction and for loving us enough to wait for us to respond to your invitation of grace. I pray this week that we would carry a heightened sense of your love, not only the love that we have for you, but the love that we're called to demonstrate to our world. We are people who have received grace, who are to embody that same grace. And as we do, I pray that in small ways your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. But for today, for this place, for this community, we just say thank you. We are here because 2,000 years ago you sent your son as light in darkness to change everything. It is in his name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part two of Seasons.